I can picture the boys over there, making plenty of noise over there. Welcome to Fred Talks, where we sit down with the Army JAG Corps historian, archivist, and professor of legal history, Mr. Fred Bork. I'm Major Joel Hood, Marine Corps representative in the Center for Law and Military Operations. That's CLAMO. Today, Mr. Bork and I discuss the history of warrant officers in the JAG Corps. Does anybody actually know what warrant officers do, Mr. Bork? Well, I think they do, and we have a very clear doctrine as to what our legal administrators are supposed to do. But I think that from the very beginning, the role of warrant officers in the JAG Corps has been problematic if only because they hold a unique role generally in the Army. Although they're commissioned now for many years, not commissioned, but warrant officers, uh, and we often grew warrant officers out of our enlisted ranks. So let's talk a little bit about the role of warrant officers and uh, legal administrators in the Corps. When did warrant officers first appear? Well, everyone should know that it's in 1918 that warrant officers are first in the Army as part of the mine planter service in the days when we had coast artillery. And probably we had some warrant officers attached to judge advocate operations 100 years ago, well, actually in the 20s and the 30s, particularly in the Philippines. But we didn't formally have warrant officers in the JAG department until World War II. And from the beginning, warrant officers were specialists. NCOs are generalists. The judge advocates were generalists. But warrant officers were specialists. And in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, when the Army was all about courts martial, seems that about 80 to 85 percent of a legal administrator's work in a JAG office was criminal law. So if you remember that in the 50s, 60s, we were trying thousands and thousands of courts martial. In 1969, the Army tried 59,000 courts martial. That was a lot of paper. And what most warrant officers, legal administrators, were doing at a post-camp and station was making sure that records of trial were correctly assembled, put together, and fly-specking those prom orders, promulgation orders. The NCOs were good, but remember we had a draft D Army, not a lot of expertise in the legal clerk uh, ranks in military justice. And since the warrant officer in the JAG Corps came out of the enlisted legal clerk ranks, it makes sense for that warrant officer to be doing mostly criminal law. Warrant officers did originally, initially, uh, have control over the management of a JAG office, So certainly the budget, supplies, awards, all these sort of management functions that continue to until today. Remember that, at least initially, we didn't have computers in the office. Uh, So really, you're looking at your warrant officer as your office manager. And to some extent, none of that has really changed. The problem is that over the years, the JAG Corps did not do enough to distinguish between the roles, the duties, responsibilities of its legal administrators and its senior paralegals. And the JAG Corps ran into trouble in the mid-1980s when the Army, after Vietnam, 
uh, was still doing its reorganization. And in this particular case, Big Army was looking for warrant officers, probably for aviation branch. And the deputy chief of staff for personnel saw that there were about 50 warrant officers in the JAG Corps, and he came to the judge advocate general at the time, Major General Hugh Overholt, and suggested that it was time for the JAG Corps to give up its warrant officers. So some of you know that the Air Force, for example, does not have warrant officers. And that means the Air Force does not have legal administrators. And so one of the arguments that the Deputy Chief of Staff for Personnel gave to General Overholt was, I don't really see why it is that you need legal administrators when the Air Force JAG Corps does just fine without them. Overholt pushed back very, very hard and insisted that we needed legal administrators, that they provided something that was really important in the Corps that our senior NCOs could not do. And things all came to a head, and this is a true story, things all came to a head when the Vice Chief of Staff of the Army, General Thurman, was about to make a decision as to whether or not the JAG Corps should keep legal administrators. And General Overholt went to General Thurman and said, look, boss, I'm willing to give up 50 judge advocate slots if you will let me keep my 50 legal administrators. And General Thurman said, are you serious? Are you really willing to give up 50 lawyer slots? And Overholt said, yes, I am. To which General Thurman said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, you can keep your legal administrators and your judge advocates. He made a good case. He made a very good case. And I think this is one of uh, the lessons is that our legal administrators are really important to the smooth functioning of every legal operation. But you have to be careful that you always differentiate and distinguish what it is about legal administrators in the core that is different from what everyone else is doing. And we've done a good job on that over the years. Uh, judge advocate legal administrators are involved in uh, security issues, not just budget and planning, supplies, of course, IT somewhat as well, although in these days we try to uh, move the IT function over to some of our experts, such as a G6. But legal administrators continue to be a valuable a part of the JAG Corps operation and historically have always served as that bridge between the officer side of the house and the NCO side of the house because we grow our warrant officers out of our NCO ranks. Not much criminal law today and at the beginning uh, where it was mostly criminal law now much much more. In education and training this is an interesting uh, point when you were a NCO in the 1980s, and even up, I think, in the early 1990s, but certainly in the 1980s, you applied to be a warrant officer in the JAG Corps, you were accepted, and all you did was take off your stripes and put on your warrant officer one bar. That's easy. It was very easy. You did not go to warrant officer candidate school at Fort Rucker, Alabama. So when did that begin? I, I'm pretty sure in the 80s, in the mid-80s, because my recollection is that when the Army announced that all warrant officers 
would be going to warrant officer candidate school if they were accepted. There was a flurry of applications from those who said, I want to get my appointment before I have to go to warrant officer candidate school. The other thing that's changed is not only does every judge advocate warrant have to go through warrant officer candidate school, but we now have a judge advocate basic course for warrants and a judge advocate warrant officer course uh, for warrants. And by the way, probably know this, Marine warrant officers, newly appointed and more senior, also come to these courses. So much more formal education and training, a lot more work on making sure that we have clearly delineated doctrine for legal administrators. Uh, And then it's just a matter of getting our staff judge advocates out there to follow the doctrine. So the last thing I want to talk about is two personalities. One of them I want to talk about briefly is a remarkable legal administrator by the name of Rosaro Lindogan, or Lindy as he went by. Uh, Lindy was the first chief warrant officer five in the JAG Corps. It wasn't until the mid-1990s that the uh, Army had Chief Warrant Officer 5. You had 1s, 2s, 3s, and 4s. But in the mid-1990s, the Army proposed creating CW5s and CW6s. Uh, The compromise at the Defense Department was CW5s. And so then the question was, who is going to be the first Chief Warrant Officer 5 in the JAG Corps. And it was Chief Warrant Officer 4, Rosaro Lindogan, and he went by Lindy, who was uh, selected. And I want to tell you a little bit about him. There's a feature article on uh, Lindogan in issue number 4 of the Army Lawyer, issue number 4 of 2020. You can read about him. But what's important is that grew up in the Philippines, enlisted in the Army during the Vietnam War, and then stayed on active duty. When Rosaro Lindogan was a CW4, he had, and this is amazing, he had a total of 47 months in Vietnam and almost 36 months on the Korean Peninsula. When he was selected for promotion from CW4 to CW5, Chief Lindogan had more than 32 years on active duty. So it's probably no surprise that although there were many competitive Chief Warrant Officer Fours, no one had the sort of career that Lindogan had. And so he's the first CW5 in Corps history. The other person to talk about, Chief Warrant Officer Five, Sharon Swartworth, our most highly decorated warrant officer in history. After her tragic death in combat over Tikrit, Iraq in 2003, when the helicopter in which she was a passenger was shot down, Sharon was killed. Very, very tragic event, a great loss to the Corps, and she was posthumously awarded the Distinguished Service Medal, becoming the most highly decorated warrant officer in JAG Corps history. And that's it. That's a brief history of legal administrators in our JAG Corps. Much more to follow. Many, many fabulous events involving warrant officers, but we'll save that for another talk. So I guess the answer to my question at the beginning, Mr. Bork, is, uh, well, who knows what warrant officers do? Well, you do, and now everyone else does as well. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to to this episode of Fred Talks on the Quill and Sword. Please listen to other episodes of Fred Talks on the Quill and Sword podcast, wherever you listen to your podcasts or on tjaglix.army.mil. We will stand to stand side by side with you.
The views expressed or implied on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Army JAG Corps or other organizations with which the participants are associated or by whom they are employed.